I'm Sean Sheehan. And I'm Rodney Robinson. And this is the Teacher's Caucus Podcast. I'm Sean Sheehan, co-host of the Teacher's Caucus Podcast. We're live in Austin at South by Southwest EDU. My co-host and partner in crime, Rodney Robinson, 2019 Virginia National Teacher of the Year, couldn't make it out for our recording today. Now, he's all right. It was just a last-minute scheduling issue. So if you came out just as he, Rodney, my apologies. Just, you know, bully him a little on social media or something. But don't worry. I have some outstanding co-hosts joining us today. So we have 2021 National Teacher of the Year, Juliana Urtube. Please introduce yourself to the, the audience and our listeners. Hello. Oh. That's on. Hi, everyone. My name is Julian Ortube. I am a special education co-teacher in Las Vegas, Nevada. I work with students um, and teachers pre-K all the way to fifth grade. And this year, I am the 2021 National Teacher of the Year, spending my year advocating for, thank you, for a joyous and just education um, to really bring forward a sense of belonging, our identities, and the justice that we really need in our schools um, for all of us to thrive, teachers, families, communities, everybody. Thank you, Juliana. And of course, the, the rock star of our show, the main event, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes from Connecticut's 5th District. Welcome to the Teachers Caucus. We're so glad to have you on. Please introduce yourself to our latest listeners and audience. Thanks, Sean, for having me. I'm so excited to be here, and I am jealous of about 90% of you listening to this because many of you still have the privilege of being in a classroom and working with kids every day. I am, as Sean said, the Congresswoman for the 5th Congressional District in Connecticut, but more importantly, I am the 2016 National Teacher of the Year. I'm so excited to be here today and be part of this conversation. Thank you, Congresswoman Hayes. Well, let's get right into it. We have a, a lot of ground that I wanted to cover this evening with you both. And I think what's top of mind for public educators, certainly administrators and the HR offices in districts across the country is teacher recruitment and retention. And so Juliana, let me go to you first. In your travels, you're traveling the country right now. Are you seeing any really innovative kind of models or movements, um, programs in place to, let's speak to first to the retention component because it's March Contracts are rolling out for classroom teachers. What are you seeing out there? I'm seeing the reels up, up and downs of what it is to be an educator in this day and age. Um, I'm seeing the effects of everyone kind of still being in awe that we thought this year was going to be different than what it is. Um, and so where I see teachers thriving is where I see intentional design for making sure teacher wellness is front and center where there are systems in place to make sure that teachers are supported from start to end of their day, where there are um, holistic designs around really great healthcare, really great maternity leave, really great uh, spaces for teachers to leverage their agency and talk about what they want and to see in their schools. And where those things are not happening, I'm hearing stories left and right about teachers just you know, we should make it the easiest decision teachers make to stay in the classroom, right? Your pay is not an issue, you're staying in the classroom. Your health care is not an issue, you're staying in the classroom. But unfortunately, the reality for many teachers in this country is the opposite. Um, they're having to battle, you know, being able to uh, financially support their families. And this is something that I know a lot of us across the country are working, but we, we're not seeing enough systems equally placed throughout the country where teachers do not have to battle with this decision of staying in the classroom. 
Um, and so, yes, it's something that I worry about quite a bit, keeps me up at night. And yet I see where it's working. I see schools that there are zero teachers leaving next year. And there's a reason. It's because their work is respected. It's because their autonomy and expertise is uplifted. And it's because they get to teach. Teachers who get to teach stay in the classroom. Go figure. That's wild. Yeah. Congresswoman Hayes, what are you seeing either back home in district or in the federal space or both? Well, I think that my perspective on this issue is just so rounded because of my time in the classroom and also as my time as National Teacher of the Year traveling. And what I've learned is that teacher investment is not enough. So many of us go into the classroom and we give everything that we have on a daily basis, but that has to be met with policy to support the work that is being done. Um, over the last two years, as we've been crafting policy in response to the COVID pandemic, my perspective as a teacher has been front and center on many of those conversations. I remember very early on, I tried to explain to my colleagues that I introduced legislation called the Save Education Jobs Act. And the purpose of it was to make sure that when districts are confronted with the difficult decision of budgets and cuts, many of us know that the first people to go are the social workers the behavior techs, the music teachers, the art teachers, all of the support staff, the library media specialists, all of the things that help us make kids complete and well-rounded and support what we do in the classroom, you know, the school nurses. And it was fascinating for me that for many of my colleagues, when they were thinking about um, professionals in the education space, um, these professionals were sometimes viewed as secondary. Um, things like we just last week introduced a bill uh, to um, the Teacher Debt Relief Act so that teachers could apply simultaneously for public uh, school loan forgiveness and um, other uh, PSL ups because teachers have to stay in the classroom sometimes for 10 years in order to be eligible for any debt relief. We have the RAISE Act to bring parity to teacher pay. All of those things that local districts have to make those decisions independently, unsupported, but also uh, infusing the teacher pipeline, giving support and resources through teacher preparation programs, um, making sure that there is longer training periods so that when teachers go, young teachers go into the classroom, they're fully prepared for the experience and they feel supported and have the resources around them while they're still uh, gaining a solid foundation and finding their legs in the profession. So as Juliana said, they have to be supported through every phase of the pipeline. And then uh, in retirement, you know, many people get to the point where they've been in the classroom for so many years and they start thinking long-term and, and really worry about whether or not they have the stability that their family has come to rely on. So all of those things have to be a part of the work we do. I think that when I was in the classroom, my, I was singularly focused on investing in my students and making sure that they had positive outcomes. Now as a legislator, I have to make sure that that focus is expanded to investing in teachers, to make sure that they are the people in front of our kids have everything that they need to be successful as well. And that, believe it or not, is a more difficult part of the conversation. Many legislators feel that supporting education and academic outcomes means only supporting students or uh, sending the majority of support to students, which is absolutely true, but you can't do that at the expense of also supporting the professionals that we're putting in front of, of kids. So I've seen all of those things. And, you know, just like in every other profession where people 
have many different options and have to make decisions about what is the next step. We have to make sure that we're supporting that. And, and I think just lastly, safety. I've seen so many, one of the things I heard on the ground is that um, it was almost as if when teachers questioned um, next steps or decisions that the district were, were making, it was, as, it was seen as if um, they didn't want to go back in the classroom or they didn't want to go back to teach. But many of the people I talked to uh, said to me, you know, I have people in my family who are vulnerable. I have young children who are not vaccinated. I have a husband who works in a different field or whatever. So um, teachers need to be able to not only feel safe, but be able to advocate when they um, think that there's concerns about safety and have that met with a positive response and not, you know, the visceral reactions that we're seeing lately. Yeah, and we're, <clears throat> we're excited to see you. We're so glad to see you introduce that act because that's such a... That's a game changer, right? Uh, the governor, Governor Abbott here, and we're in Texas, we're at South by Southwest here in Austin, and on Monday of this week, he called on the TA commissioner to create a teacher shortage task force, and they're going to dive into some of those issues, but my question to both of you is, is it still a salary thing, or is it a workload thing? Because I'm hearing... I'm seeing the salary kind of come, like talking point come down a little bit, and it's the workload. It's all the unfunded mandates. It's the increasingly divisive like um, climate surrounding education, right? Or are they how you know the extra scrutiny into the lesson plans? Indiana ran a bill; it did fail, but they wanted them to post their their lesson plans for the year, which is the equivalent of having like the coach, uh, the football coach, post his his game plans for the whole season. Which you're like, that's not responsive at all to the needs of of the team, and in this case, the students. So I'd like each of you to respond to just like, is it still the salary? Is it the workload? Is it some combination of both? Um, and what's the what's the call for, like, how can we get some immediate relief out? Because I think that's the other, the other component of this is folks are looking at contracts right now. And, and teachers, because they want to do the right thing, they're not going to leave their kids in March or at spring break. They're just, they've, they've received the contract. And I know this because I'm thinking of my, I've got a handful of friends. The principals will ask for that contract early April, mid-April, and they'll say, oh yeah, let me just, I need a little bit more time. What they're doing is they're interviewing for other gigs, right? And then at that last minute, uh, you know what, I'm good. I got a job at, uh, at a local bank, or you know, I'm switching to the private sector where I won't have emails from parents at 5.30 p.m. or 8.30 p.m. So talk a bit about you know, how can we alleviate that quickly um, in the, both the salary space and the workload space? And Juliana, I'll, I'll go to you first. It's absolutely both, and I think for different teachers, one or the other may weigh more heavily. Um, I know many teachers that are single family uh, breadwinners and struggle to support their children, struggle to give their children the resources that their children need. This morning, we were listening to Secretary Cardona on a panel with students, and one of the students, his mom is a teacher, and when it came time for him to start dreaming big because he wants to be an artist, his mom had to sit him down and say, no, I don't have the money for you to go to college. We have to get scholarships. And what an injustice that is for teachers to provide educational opportunities for students and not be able to provide that for their own children, not be able to give their own children high quality childcare so that they can go to teach, not be able to have a dignified room to breastfeed or to pump, right? These are all factors that I think weigh heavily on teachers' hearts. Um, and minds, and I think that the pandemic has made these issues even more important, 
right? I know a lot of teacher friends whose spouses have lost their work or it's just not worth it for them to go back into work. Like Congresswoman Hayes was saying, it, their safety is up in question, right? Um, but it's also the context of teaching, right? We want to teach and we want to, uh, know, we know we're experts and we know that we can design um, spaces for all of our students to thrive. And there's all these things that constantly tell us that our expertise is not valued in the classroom. I want to see more mentorship programs so that, because we do have teachers that are ineffective. That's a reality, and I know that that's a factor in why, you know, sometimes it's hard to increase teacher pay and give us equitable pay for our work. Um, and I want to see more mentorships because, you know, as a National Board Certified Teacher, I believe every child deserves an accomplished teacher. And I would add that every teacher deserves the opportunity to become accomplished, right? So these things are all levers and paths that can simultaneously be in motion so that we make sure teachers are earning equitable pay for their expertise. Let's give teachers like that bill about loan forgiveness. Yes, one less thing for them to worry about, right? Let's give teachers great health care or um, child care. We're teachers after all. Why not build, you know, every area should have a child care center for teachers so that we don't even have to worry about it. One last thing, let's constantly think about what we can take off teachers' plates so that we can do what we want to do, which is focus on great educational design and implementation of that design so that our students not only have the social and emotional support that they need right now, but also the academic rigor. Congresswoman? Well, <laughs> Sean, I think I'll remind you of something that you said the first time I met you I guess it's almost five years ago. Teaching is that mission work. It is a profession and we have to teach, treat it as such. And I think that to answer your question, it's not just about salary. Um, there's always been conversation around teaching salaries, but people who love the profession, who wanted to be teachers were still gravitating to the field of teaching. So salary alone is, is not, not the problem. I think that it is just the compilation of everything that we're seeing. There was just a, an article out that said one in four teachers report depression or an increased stress or workload. There are all of these factors that are added onto a teacher's workload. Again, I think that we have to remind people that teaching is a profession and things like posting your lesson plans for the year and uh, broadcasting out into the community so that people can watch what's happening in your class, that disrespects the profession. You have to trust. I, I, I find it fascinating that throughout this pandemic, we've seen many iterations of teachers being heroes, of open our schools, our kids need their teachers, they need to be in person, face to face with no masks because that's the only real learning. And now kids are back in school and there's this competing argument, but we can't trust the teachers to close the door and teach. So you can't have it both ways. So really just um, highlighting the fact that this is a profession and the people who do this work have been trained to do it. Support those people, support the people that are in the classroom to do what it is that they've been hired and trained to do. And then uh, really understand the process. I, I find that as I'm listening to all of these iterations of the, crit the criticism of what's happening in classrooms, I ask people, do you even understand how curriculum works? Teachers don't have the autonomy to decide arbitrarily that I'm going to teach this or I'm going to do this. It goes through curriculum committees and the, the resources are chosen, the textbooks are chosen. And in most places, that's a community conversation or it goes before a board. So there's nothing nefarious about how that operates. 
But a lot of it is also, like Juliana said, taking all of the excess off of teachers' plates. And that's why we have to invest in things like childcare. We're a novel idea that you can't say that our children are our priority. Just a second. That's the bell. Yep. <laughs> I, I'm still living bell to bell. So. I remember uh, that from my classroom, too. <laughs> you can't say that children are our priority, but then not want to make those types of investments. Um, just all of these things, making sure that we have 21st century programs for before and after school support for in-school additional resources so that teachers can pull kids aside and give them the, the extra time and attention that they need. But all of these things, um, as I'm learning here in Congress, are line items in a budget. So somebody has to care enough about them to say that this has to, we have to allocate funds to do that. Um, people think at the local level, your budget is a value statement, but that you know, it elevates up through every level. If we are not allocating funds at the federal level to say, this is important enough, not only for us to have an intentional plan for implementation, but to provide the funding and the resources to make sure that it is done effectively, it'll never happen. So this idea that, and, and it's, it's frustrating because I think many teachers struggle with the fact that can I support my own family or can I do what I love to do or what is my calling? And that shouldn't happen. Again, teaching is not mission work and teachers should not be expected to work for substandard pay for no benefits to have additional workloads because they love their kids or they love their job. They should be able to do both of those things and still be treated as the professionals that they are and be supported at every level in the work that they do. Absolutely. I would say from my perspective, just at least in Oklahoma and Texas, the challenge is you have competing narratives within this campus. So you'll have folks, I fell into this category as you quoted me, where, you know, the, the act of teaching kids with disabilities how to complete mathematical functions, that's a highly technically challenging job. Teaching a kid phonemic awareness, awareness and how to read is, requires a high level of technical expertise and is, as such, I should be paid as a professional. And then you'll have a teacher next door across the hall that's for whom this is a non-starter. Like, they're not the primary breadwinner in the household. You know, I, I, I used to line up my dolls and teach to them when I was, you know, just a small child. And, and I would do this job for free. And the, the difficulty there is that we have legislators who will pick and choose which narrative to highlight at a time that is convenient for their cause, right? So we'll have times where, you know, we heard that hero narrative of educators where, you know, when we were closed... There's a teacher, you know, in Dallas ISD that went to the houses and knocked doors on the apartment complex, and she's a single mom, and she did everything, and she was Superman. So, Sean, how dare you ask for 10K more when you don't even have it that bad? The students you serve aren't even that bad. They're in a, a suburb, you know? So that's but The challenge I, there, Sean, is that what ends up happening is the kids in our most high-need areas, the black and brown kids, the indigenous populations, our BIPOC students, all of those kids who already have all of these challenges and are only receiving support and resources at school, those are the communities that are hardest hit because they can't attract teachers, they can't support teachers, and even when they grow and develop teachers, there's a mass exodus to a place where they don't have to worry about all of those things. They go to a district where they don't have to worry about, let me make sure that I've brought snacks and my closet is full because I'm going to have a kid come to school hungry. 
um, and I'm taking away from my grocery budget. And that really is just an unfair um, choice that, that teachers have to make. And like Juliana said, our most highly qualified, you know, expert teachers in the field um, really have to make a decision between doing the work that they love and supporting the students that need it the most or moving into an area or a district where their very hyper-specific expertise will be met with the salary it demands. Absolutely. And I, you know, for me, what I, when I left the state of Oklahoma to go to Texas, you know, the, there were, there were like 4,000 comments on a Reddit post that I had. You can't, you, I know you're not supposed to read the comments, Never. right? I you're remember. not supposed to read the comments, but all I needed was just a little bit of empathy from the folks who, you know, just, yeah, it's tough. You got to do what's right for your family. And I think in 2022 and going forward, when we're talking about teacher salaries and workloads, if these issues don't apply to you, your educator across the hall or next door still needs you to lock arms with them at the state capitol or wherever they are in, in the U.S. capitol and say, this is still an issue. And if we don't get this resolved or at least alleviated for some of my colleagues, then I'm going to continue to have to cover classes during my planning period, write sub plans for the teachers who are out doing what they need to do to take care of their families. Let me close. I want to pivot because I don't want the teacher recruitment or attention to dominate the conversation. But let's say to both of you, you have an audience of educators who have received that contract and they're just, they're not sure they want to sign. How do you, what's your selling point? What's your talking point to them to, to reconsider? I think Which about, is a big ask. Sorry. it is a huge ask. And, um, you know, but this is the job this year. This year I'm the national teacher of the year during probably one of the hardest years for teachers. And so I have to live my hope, right? I can't get up on stage and, talk about how wonderful our profession is and how meaningful and the impact without living the hope, right? And we were talking about this earlier. There is this um, Marianne Kaba quote, um, and she's an abolitionist working for uh, women who are incar incarcerated. Um, and she does a lot of really beautiful work. But what she says is that hope is a practice. It's not an emotion. It is a practice. And so what I want to do to talk to that teacher is that it's not, I don't want to convince them to stay. I want to ask them, what do you need? What do you want out of this profession? How do we build the systems? And I believe in thinking global, acting local, right? Because as, you know, last year my role was to support teachers um, and to support them giving supports and services to students with disabilities. Um, some of the teachers just needed an extra hand in the classroom. Some teachers needed me to sit next to them and write lesson plans with them, write IEPs with them, write behavior plans with them, call families with them. We need to be able to support teachers on an individual basis because no two teachers need the same thing. Um, but we also need to be really honest about where education is moving. You know, I remember um, one of my years, I was about done. I had a caseload of about 40 students as a special education teacher. That's so many meetings. Um, that's so much paperwork and documentation and assessment. Forget even scheduling planning and teaching, right? Um, and then I had an idea. Why not combine my classroom with the other resource teacher? She taught K-3. I taught 4-5. Why not combine a classroom and we'll teach K-5 together collaboratively? 
that saved me as a teacher because I had another professional who helped me see my areas of need and strengthen those up. Vice versa, I did the same thing. But we shared the responsibility of supporting our stu students' social and emotional wellness. We were successful and effective as teachers, way more than we would have been on our own. And we prevented a handful of students from going into self-contained placements because they got the accommodations and supports that th they needed. Unrealistic for one person to do all that work. Together, we were able to you know, support each other. But that teacher today is not a teacher. She's moved on into another profession because she needed to support her family. So that's why, again, we go back into that question. It's not just salary or support. It's both. Um, and it's simultaneous. And I was on this walk today. Bear with me. I was on this walk today, and it was the Austin Art Tour. And on a personal side, I love art. I love murals. I think murals are a beautiful way to claim space and communicate to people, you're welcome here, right? And in the same time, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is just gentrification on top of gentrification and an erasure of history. It's the same thing because if now, if in 2020, Austin is saying, okay, we need affordable housing, we need to make sure that there's a Latino quarter, an African-American black quarter to preserve this history, to preserve these artists. If they're doing it in 2020, there's 40 years of people that have been lost and washed away. So if these things are happening in 2022, but teachers have been struggling for years and years, we're only barely covering up you know, the wound. We need to think really drastically and think about how we mentor teachers so that they're effective and effective and they have the tools that they need. Um, so I forgot your original question, Sean, because I got so into the, how all these systems are intertwined. Um, but reel me back in. What's the sell? So they're, they're, they're sitting, they're in our audience and they're thinking, I don't think I want to sign that contract. It's, it's not that easy. It's about knowing that teacher is a human, knowing their strengths, knowing their needs, and knowing that all of their needs as teachers are not deficits. Right? Like we're humans, we get to build, we get to explore, and we have the human collective knowledge within a school to get the teacher supports that they need, right? So sometimes that takes a building administrator saying, look, Fridays you're not teaching. Fridays you're going to co-plan with your team, and I'm going to hire blah, 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 blah people to come in and give really great resources to the students, really great classes, but I want you to have time for planning and grading. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's small things like that that give teachers the breath that they need, right? Um, so there isn't an easy solution, but we got to ask teachers, what do you want, what do you need, and put find a way to put it in place. Congresswoman Hayes? Well, I always struggle when someone asks that question because I never thought I'd leave the classroom. So the fact mm -hmm. that I left the classroom, I always, that was probably the most difficult decision I've ever made because all I ever wanted to be was a teacher. But then in that moment, there was a different calling for me. So I always feel weird about, uh, I, I, I always struggle with that because I feel like I abandoned my first love. Um, but in that same vein, I think that it shouldn't require us convincing someone to sign that contract. We have to change the way we are training people to go into teaching. You know, how, what is the preparation for this um, work? I really think we, we need to invest in high quality teacher residencies, a full year of student teaching, um, solid, excellent mentorship programs, aligned coursework, all of those things so that when someone enters this profession, they go in eyes wide open. 
They know what a, a rough teaching year looks like or a difficult situation. I, there's not this false sense of I had 15 weeks and it was amazing and I'm going to be a fantastic teacher. They've really uh, gone in and, and gone through some stuff so that there's the expectations are real. They're clear. They know where to get support. They know that if you ride it out, it gets better. And they're on the ground in a stable way so that first year teachers aren't saying, you know what, I made a mistake. Let me leave. We really have to be I, we've talked about this over and over, but in no other profession do you have this tiny window of practical experience where you really where you get to make mistakes where you get to go back to the drawing board, where you look at your aligned coursework and what just happened, you know, in the classroom where you've had to enter some grades and do some follow-ups and just all of the things that we experience on a daily basis. I think that for especially new teachers, having that kind of a foundation will really help them to be able to make the decision on their own. And even for veteran teachers or teaching teachers looking to change districts, there's a variety of reasons why um, teachers leave one district, go to another, find a different um, school. And I think that people have to balance not only what are the needs of their students, but what are their own personal and family needs? Because if you ignore one at the expense of the other, you'll never be happy in that setting. Um, I've seen so many of my colleagues who commute you know, long commutes because they love this school, they love this community. But what that means is that someone else is dropping off their own, their child and picking up their child after school. So all of those things, that's not a healthy balance. So I think, you know, letting teachers have the option to say, this is what works best for my family. And it's symbiotic because it also works best for my students, but you can't have one without the other. So I think really, Again, I think the answer is the same. Investing at every stage of the pipeline, making sure that people have what they need um, to be supported. And especially now, especially with what we've experienced over the last year and a half, as I reflect on you know, the lessons that we've learned from COVID, there's some really positive takeaways as well. You know, Everybody thinks about how bad the year was, but we really were able to have hybrid options in a way that we've never done before. We were able to um, uh, uh, access resources at the Library of Congress, all of these different things that teachers were may have been um, hesitant or reluctant to engage in this high-tech world, that is presented as an option. So we have a menu of things. So if you have administrators who are willing to work with teachers and you know work with leadership and, and um, help them to just be flexible and find options and help them to teach in a way that is the most productive for them. And then the last thing I'll say, as I'm talking, I keep thinking of other things because <laughs> the first time I started even thinking about leaving the classroom wasn't after Teacher of the Year when I ran for Congress. It was when my ability to grow as a leader was stifled. When I had all these ideas and I wanted to go to professional development and I wanted to grow and learn as a teacher, and I had an administration that put a lid on everything. So not only helping teachers to invest in students, but also giving them the opportunity to expand in their own professional development and growth, to become teacher leaders, to run workshops, to do other things that help them also feel like an adult professional. Um, I, I found that for so many people, they feel like um, for so many teachers, 
you feel so like almost restricted. Like I have all this talent and all these ideas and I spent all this money on all this education and I have all these student loans and you don't trust me to go to a workshop for, you know, a half a day because you think I'm going to abuse the time. So that has to be a part of any retention or recruitment strategies to really make sure that there are opportunities for growth. Because if a person feels stagnant in any position, they're not going to stay. Yeah, you just covered the rest of my agenda for the evening. So thank you, Congresswoman <laughs> Hayes. That's it. We're done. <laughs> We're, no, I mean, I, I do. I I was, as it's going through my head, I was thinking the first time I ever seriously thought, like even had the conversation in my head about leaving my district or my school or, or even giving myself permission to think beyond that was when my growth was stifled by my administrators. Can I add Please. something? Because something you said, Congresswoman Hayes, made me um, realize something, right? We don't talk enough about, we talk enough about how teachers are the number one determinant on the success of a child. But we don't talk enough about how principals and administrators are the one number one determinant on the success of a teacher. There's not enough support for our administrators. There's not enough checks and balances, systems of justice when wrongs, when teachers have been wronged by their principal. That's the number one reason we left. I will put it out there. That's the reason that why I left the school that we started a 20,000 square foot garden that unified our whole community. I had to leave, right? Teachers leave because they are not respected. And the other thing I'll say is we don't have people like Congresswoman Hayes making the decisions, who know, okay, yeah, you, we've seen this across the country, we'll increase pay, but what else increases as soon as we increase pay? Class sizes. That's not, that's, we're, we're just taking 10 steps backwards after taking one forward, right? People like Congresswoman Hayes says, well, yeah, we're going to put that in, we're going to increase teacher pay, but we're also going to ensure that you have a manageable class size case caseloads, right? I don't know what your highest caseload was as a special education teacher, but when I started pushing 40, I didn't know if it was humanly possible, right? And this is a reality of many teachers across the country. And what burns us out is that we can't grow as humans with our students. Yeah. And I'll, to, to close out just this segment, I would say for anyone, a teacher that's sitting on a contract decision, You've got to take inventory of the pros and cons, which we're not really used to doing. And another thing we're definitely not used to doing is making our demands known. This was an ask that was made of me in Oklahoma. They said, "What's the okay, what is it going to take, Sean? What's the top line figure for you? And my, my response was 10K. I did the math on this, and I just need 10K, and I'm willing to work for it. Give me more days on the contract. Give me extra duties I've done. I did Saturday algebra. I did all the things. I'm willing to work for it. I'm not asking for a handout. Just find a way to insert 10K into my salary. And the response no, was just like... No, Sean, let me... Let me I, I'm, I'm with Congressman <laughs> no, Hayes on this one. I'm in a different place right now, and I'm an employer. As a member and this was 2016, to be clear. I understand, yes, but go on, go on. I have a full staff. As a member of Congress, you have to hire people. And I can tell you the... I don't even know what the word is. The chutzpah that some of the, I have, you know, 20 somethings that just graduated and they're applying for a position as a, a staff assistant, you know, which is a receptionist basically in a congressional office. And they come in and they say, this is how much I'd like to make. And I need Tuesdays off because I have class and I need, and I'm thinking as a teacher, you never like so many teachers are like, what can I get with right. literally putting their degrees on the table and say, tell me what you want me to do. 
So again, it has to be at, on the front end of those contracts. It's not even making your demands known, but saying, this is what I need to be successful in this job. You know, these are the, this is the salary that I need uh, to be successful in this job. And it, again, it's one of those things that teachers feel conflicted about doing and are very uncomfortable about doing because we have been led to believe that by doing that, you are shifting the focus from the kids to yourself. And again, this is a profession. Right. I, I hire people in so many roles and every person wants to negotiate a contract, wants to negotiate benefits, wants to negotiate salaries. And it is fascinating to me. And I feel like as teachers, even sometimes teachers unions, it, there, there's this idea that um, the union's focus is completely somewhere else. But part of our job is you know, collective bargaining and the labor and benefits provisions. It's not, once again, mission work. So the, le the level of comfort with having those conversations that say, you know what, this is what I deserve with the education and the experience that I bring to this role. And be willing to, and I think that once, unless and until educators begin to do that, and then be willing to say, well, you know what, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to go somewhere else or I, you know, I have to find a district or a school that's more supportive of what I need as well. The culture will never change. Um, but that is, it, it just is fascinating because all of us, you know, to get these jobs, you have to have, in my state, I remember one of the first conversations we had in Congress was this fight over student loans. And the focus was on me. Well, why do you have all these loans? You don't, you know, that was your choice. And I said, in the state of Connecticut, you're required to have a master's degree to teach in the classroom. So I took on almost $80,000 in student loan debts to start a job that paid me 31. We're going to um, just push people away from this profession if we are not bringing it on parity with other professions that require the same level of education. Right. Yeah, and I would just, I wanted to say, you know, their response was, hey, if you consider going admin, to your point about teacher leadership. I, I was just like, they said I was one of the best teachers around, and you're saying I gotta go do something that is not teaching, you know, so. Well, look, let's, let's pivot. We have about 15-ish, 10-ish minutes left, um, and, Congresswoman Hayes, I, don't, I know you may have to duck out at some point for votes, so. I'm watching that. They called the vote. I'm watching it. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I want to end on a high note because we, we were talking about really heavy stuff, but let's talk about the, the, the people in the, the campus for whom we serve. The, we're talking about the students, right? Let's talk about student success stories. Let's end on the high note. And, and you both could go on days and days for just awesome stories, but I want to ask you, and I'll start with you, Juliana. What has been just one of the most uplifting things that you have seen related to students and student interactions this year as, as our National Teacher of the Year? And then the same question will be for you, Congresswoman Hayes. Could be this year, could have been your year in 2016. I remember when we welcomed back students on campus. I was at a new school and it was nerve-wracking because these are students and families that I had met virtually only because it was a brand new school. We started virtually. And around February, our youngest students got to come back, pre-K, kinder, first and second. And we were preparing for hallway before school duty. And normally that's something teachers dread, extra duty. Except for I was so excited to see children and their whole bodies with their feet, you know. Um, 
And they just came in with their backpacks overpacked, with masks, and they were following the little uh, stickers we put on the carpet so that they could, you know, safely distance. And I just remember feeling chills because of how brave and how beautiful and how important this work is, right? And I think that as a teacher, I'm constantly looking for affirmations of our impact. Um, what I've noticed is twofold. Sean, in being able to kind of travel around and talk to teachers. I think teachers, like Congresswoman said, Hayes said, that we are shy to negotiate our worth. We are also shy to um, amplify our impact. We don't see it. And so this year, I've been able to um, drop back into my school book or elementary whenever I have a couple hours here and there and I'm in town, and I get to see the kids months apart. Right? So I get to see the kid who struggled to sit on the carpet and engage in dialogue with his peers, now do that and more. Right? And I get to remind the teacher, you did that. Your classroom community that you cultivated did that, and it means the world to that child. Right? So your impact matters. Um, and the other thing that I think that I've been really excited to see this year as I travel around is to work with aspiring teachers in high school. You know, that's beautiful. And to work with early career teachers and to affirm to them that their knowledge matters. I think that when early career teachers come into our schools, they're made to feel like they don't know. And it's actually, I think, it really important for them to understand that it's the system that's putting too much on, on them. It's so much hard to know how to do all the grading books, how to do all the follow the bell schedule, get your kids to lunch on time, know which kid belongs to what family, um, put the right notes in the backpack, write the newsletter. There's so many things. And so um, I think that it's exciting to tell them how important they are and how uh, they're an elemental part of the ecosystem of education. And I think veteran teachers need to do more to let them know how impactful they are. Um, so yes, there's signs of hope everywhere, um, but it doesn't mean that we lose reality um, on what needs to continue to improve for us to be able to do what we wanna do, which is serve our students, have them thrive socially, economically, emotionally, <laughs> also economically, right? Like I want my kids to leave school and do well, but and then also academically. Congresswoman? I think when you're the teacher of the year, you have a very unique opportunity to hear in real time the impact that you've had on kids and in a way different than most other teachers. You know, when you're first announced, you hear from parents, you hear from students all over that you've touched at some point. Um, so it, it almost is that all of this communication is condensed and, 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 and illuminated in a way that I don't think most teachers get to experience in real time that way. But for me, I think the, the most powerful, I mean, and this is after uh, traveling the world as teacher of the year, speaking to all of these stakeholder groups, I was a high school history teacher and I taught civics and government. Um, probably the least political person in my whole teacher of the year cohort. I just, politics, you know, I, I paid attention to policy, but I was never, uh, uniquely interested in politics. But when I decided I was going to run for Congress, it was this crazy, far-fetched idea. I'd never run for public office. I, I said, you know, this is important. One of the things that triggered it was um, um, after Florida, after the shooting in Florida, and one of the responses to Parkland was to arm teachers, and that, it, it kept me awake at night. I worked in a just a really big public school that I just couldn't imagine being responsible for a firearm in this building. And it was one of those things 
I kept asking myself, well, what do, what do you do? What are you going to do about this? So when I decided I was going to run for Congress, it was a crazy idea. I'd never done anything like this. I didn't know how I was going to do it. In the summer of 2018, um, I had no political network, and many of my former students who were home on spring break, on college break, they started to spread on social media. Um, they all just showed up one day, and they said, we're here to help you get elected. I had one girl who was going to school in Philadelphia, and she drove up, and she said, I'm here to volunteer. And every weekend for the next seven weeks, she drove up on Friday and volunteered on Saturday and Sunday. So to see all these kids who I had taught how to engage civically, actually engage civically, uh, with no regard for politics, but you told us that if we did our part and if we worked really hard and if we did X, Y, and Z, that it will work. Now I need for you to prove that it will work. So this whole summer, I had all these kids every day showing up. And when I tell you all I had was kids, I'm not, it's not a metaphor. Um, it's not hyperbole. All I had was kids. Like nobody else thought I had a chance. They didn't want to deal with me. But these kids faithfully showed up every day. They built me a website. They recorded an ad for me. So the day of the primary, when I actually won the election, for these kids to see, wait, we did this and it worked was the culmination of 15 years of teaching civics. So for me, I think that is really um, just the best way to describe the work that we do. When you see the kids take all of this theory and put it in practice, you know, no matter what your, your subject area is, but for these kids who I taught, you know, this is what the House of Representatives do, does. This is how you get elected. These are the requirements. You know, these are lessons that I just, rolled off my tongue every year to the point where it was just, you know, uh, a compulsory exercise. And now these kids were there repeating this back to me saying, you know, oh no, we have to do this. So you have to, and I was like, oh my God, you guys actually were listening. So that is, I, I mean, that is, I guess, as real as it gets um, to see these kids know about electoral college counts and what that means and why it's important and, and, and the constituency and how many congressional districts we have, but not from a textbook or a PowerPoint, but because they were actually on the ground, you know, going through all these networks, figuring it out. I think that for me is probably one of the proudest moments that I've, I've had as a teacher because some, you know, you, you do the best you can and sometimes it's good enough and sometimes it's not. And then kids go off and you hope that you made an impact or that some of it was at least retained. So to see um, that they got it <laughs> is something that, that I pray that every teacher has an opportunity to see at some point. Because those are the things when the life is sucked out of you and you feel like your soul has left your body. Those are the things that, that keep you engaged and say, you know what, and this is why I do this. So... Um, that that's it for me. Yeah, oh my gosh. that story. Can you please write a book about that story? I mean, yeah, oh. a, it doesn't get more. That's a grassroots campaign. But you sowed the seeds years and years and years ago, not even knowing. It, it even gets better. So the kids, my students <laughs> built this website, which I didn't even know. My students built this website, and it was literally as. It's so funny because I looked at it and I was like, oh, my God, this is trifling. Like, no, this cannot be the representation of me because it was so grassroots. It was grainy, but they did all the footage. And I was like, this is all I got. I can't afford to hire anyone. 
And this website was chosen by the Library of Congress to capture the environment of the 2018 election and really um, put in historical context all of these just emerging new um, elected officials, you know, all these women ran. So these kids now who built this website have an ISBN number at the Library of Congress. It's in their catalog because they said it was one of the most authentic representations, which is a nice way yeah. to say yeah. straight ghetto. <laughs> but it really just, it, it, it really um, just memorialized the journey, you know, and to, as a history teacher to think that our journey will be captured as part of the history of the 2018 election, for me to be able to give that to these kids was just unbelievable. That's wild. Well, we're nearing the end of our time, and I didn't prep either of you on this, but you're, you're both good off the cuff. We always have our guests close out our episode with a homework assignment for the listeners and an extra credit assignment for the listeners. So the homework assignment would be a, a doable task or a book or a resource or something to just an action item for them to do that you want them to take away from this episode. And then the extra credit is just anything and everything under the sun. But I'll, I'll, And I don't usually give homework. I'll give you just time to process the ask. I'll say my, my homework... My homework that I would give to our, our Teachers Caucus members was uh, my ulterior motive in asking about the student success was like, if you're thinking, if you're still looking at that dotted line contract, remember those stories. That's, that, those are the things that give you the energy, the why we would do this. It's, it's, it's so easy to forget and it's difficult. And that, that alone is not the single determining factor, but take inventory and, and cherish those success stories, those student success stories, because that is the thing that will get you through. That may be the deciding factor on whether or not you sign and renew that contract in 2022-2023 school year. We need you desperately. So, um, Juliana, what's your homework assignment for the okay. Teachers Caucus? And I even have notes. So I was so lucky I got to meet Congresswoman Johanna Hayes in October in D.C. And something you said to all of us, it was the 2020 and the 2021 State Teachers of the Year. We were all together being celebrated. Um, and it was really beautiful because the 2020s would have gotten their Washington week under the Trump administration, which uh, was not teacher friendly. And then COVID hit. So then we got to celebrate with them. So it was about 115 teachers uh, representing all the states and the territories. And Congresswoman Hayes came to talk to us. And um, you said that teaching was the only job that loved you back and that we belong in every room at every table, not being, we don't need to wait to be told what's next in education because we had all been chosen for a time like this. You don't know how many teachers rippled and carried that through and we're still talking about that moment. So my homework assignment is if you're in the capacity to mentor someone, do it. If you are in need of mentorship, find someone who will breathe life into you, who will show you your impact. And then my extra credit assignment would be to write about it, whether it's maybe just in your own journal or maybe you do put it out in social media. Um, I am thinking of our impact again, and I have a teacher friend who was, you know, is going through a really dark time and heavy times. And she was listening to another podcast. She was listening to the Two Dope Teachers podcast with um, 2010 Teacher of the Year, National Teacher of the Year, Sarah Brown Wesling. And Sarah basically said, the way I get through it is by taking one tiny step at a time. Those words got that other teacher out of bed when she couldn't get out of bed. 
You never know the impact that your words are going to have on other people when you're side by side doing this work together. So homework, be mentored or mentor, extra credit, write about it and share it because your words matter to other people. Your stories matter. Thank you, Liliana. Congresswoman? Um, I think something Liliana said is very important, and it was something that was critical for me when I was National Teacher of the Year. One of the things that I struggled with was oftentimes when you are an effective teacher or a celebrated teacher or you become really good at what you're doing, you're only put in rooms with other teachers who are also celebrated teachers. So I, I really pushed to bring first and second year teachers into those rooms, to invite someone who's never been acknowledged to see, no, there are people who have done well and thrived and been successful in this profession and to help them create some networks as well. It should not just be highly effective teachers communicating with highly effective teachers. Um, but if I would say to do something, it would be one of the things that helped me when I was named teacher of the year because I felt like such a fraud. I was like, oh my God, they think like I'm the best teacher and I know that's not true. I'm not even the best teacher in my building. And I, I got to make my peace with this. And I read a very short book. It's called Year of Yes by Chandra Rhimes. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but it is a super easy read. And basically she decided this year, I'm going to say yes to all the opportunities that are presented. And I think sometimes as teachers, we are so um, just concrete, sequential that everything has to be planned. And at some point you really have to just step out on faith and give yourself permission to to live your full and complete life. So uh, I would say as a homework assignment, uh, that's something. But also, again, I was the least political person, but having done this work now going into my second term, my third year, one of the things that always rings in the back of my mind is my teaching colleagues would always say, I don't get involved in politics. I would encourage you to inform yourself and know what is going on because every day we take a vote on everything from your pension to college preparation programs to funding for education to health care to all the things that directly affect you. And I sit on the Committee of Education and Labor, and there are so many stakeholder groups that come before Congress to elevate the needs of the stakeholders that they serve. My other committee is the Committee of Agriculture. On the Committee of Agriculture, there are lobbyists for everything from sugar beets to dairy cows. On my committee of ed and labor, two groups, NEA and AFT are the voice of teachers. Teachers have to do a better job of making sure that elected officials have their concerns, that they are speaking with fidelity on behalf of what they need. And the only way to do that is to get involved, um, not in the politics, but in the policy and making sure this is what's on the table. This is what is being um, discussed or debated. This is what is being decided upon tonight. Actually, I have to go vote, but we are trying to pass uh, the fiscal budget. A huge part of that budget is education funding. We've had more academic funding in the last year than in the last decade. You know, IDEA is something that has been historically underfunded because no one has to respond to a group that is not at the table. Right. So your homework is to educate yourself on what is happening and make sure that you, I mean, if, you, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So when things have to get cut, I notice that 
those programs are always cut because it is a group that is that is not engaged and not aware. So educate yourself and make yourself aware. And I have to go vote on the previous question. Thank you, Congresswoman <laughs> Hayes, 2016 you. National Teacher thank of the Year. We appreciate you. you. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> Who's going <laughs> to that's, that's how it goes. Well, Juliana, close this out with an extra credit assignment for the Teachers Caucus. Anything at all. Yeah, I'm going to build off this writing. You know, uh, I get to travel around and teachers tell me their stories. Write those stories down, right? It's, this is a particular moment in time that really matters. Write your stories down, share them. You know, obviously get permission from the student and their families, um, but share them. Share those stories because those are the stories that are going to carry us through. Those are the stories that we're going to be able to, in a mirror, see back the lessons that we've learned during this time. So amplify the stories that are not being told. Amplify the stories that people think are insignificant but are not insignificant, right? Um, sometimes people say something or do something that literally changes your trajectory of your profession, of your career, of your life. And I think it's important to uh, memorialize those through writing. And I want every teacher to know that they have something to say and what they say matters. And so um, write it, share it, send it to me on Twitter. I don't, whatever you tag feel comfortable, it, yeah. tag me in it. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, we have teachers of the year who we want to write books I, you would have asked me two months ago if I would have ever written a book or even considered writing a book. My answer would have been like a big no. But now I'm compelled to because I'm realizing my story matters just as much as the next teacher's. And I, I want to read teacher stories. Yeah. Well, 2021, teacher of, National Teacher of the Year, Juliana Ratube, thank you so much for joining the Teachers Caucus. It is, it's been a joy, honestly, to just watch you on your journey. You're, you're kind of rounding it out now. But you have just been such a wonderful representative for this profession, for educators. You have paved the way for countless other kids who I'm sure saw you do this, saw you on the cover of People magazine and thought, okay, like, I'll give it a go. Future author Juliana Urtube, thank you so much for joining us. And Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, who had to leave to go vote on the very important uh, appropriations budget bill. Um, she knows, I think, the world of her, but I wanted to verbalize that on this podcast episode to South by Southwest and the folks in the room. A sincere appreciation for you all for joining us, staying with us. It's the last episode of the night. You all have plenty of other places to go, so thank you really for coming out. And this meeting of the Teachers Caucus is now adjourned. <laughs>